This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Recently, I discussed on the pod one of my great life regrets. There's so many. But one of them, I don't spend more time in nature. And it was around this time that my next guest's new book landed on my desk. And what a remarkable gent he is. He's known widely as the best all-round rock climber in the world. An adventurer at the fire of the odds. A liver of life. A man whose first formative infant memory is of holding up in a mountain cave to weather a snowstorm. A gent who survived six days in captivity amidst the peaks of Kyrgyzstan after being kidnapped by Islamic militants, who then severed his finger off, yet persevered to become a giant in his sport and the first human being to free-climb the eternally feared dorm wall on El Capitan in Yosemite, a 3,000-feet granite face as smooth as porcelain. Sounds a bit like Peter Crouch. The face had long been considered to be impossible to climb. Took him three attempts over seven years, but in 2015, over the course of two and a half grueling weeks with the world, yes, the world following along via the media and social media, my guest lived on that dorm wall, inching up its unforgiving face and slowly, brutally conquering it. His new book, The Push, a climber's journey of endurance, risk and going beyond limits tells the whole story. I read it. I was fascinated by his outlook on life, his ability to suffer, to endure tortuous levels of pain in the single-minded pursuit of his life goals, and above all, his masterful understanding of the difference between risk and recklessness. This man, he's essentially the complete opposite of me, which is why I'm so glad to have him here in the studio with us. We welcome from Estes, Colorado, the legendary Mr. Tommy Caldwell. <laughs> wow, I must admit I'm uh, holding my head up a bit higher after that introduction. <laughs> oh, Tommy, I have right on. been so excited yeah. <laughs> for you to come. And I have so many questions. And I think if this works, I'm going to leave this room as a better man. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that usually happens when uh, people get in the same room with me. <laughs> I, I think it's just a common thing. <laughs> no pressure, man. Your beginnings. You grew up in Colorado with a climber-obsessed dad. Age six, you started to make all-day cliff-face climbs. You were a small kid, painfully shy, an introvert, but you wrote, on the wall, I came alive. This place changes me. Can you describe that transformation that you experienced as a kid when you were alone, thousands of feet up on the sheer face of a cliff? Yeah, you know, my dad was um, kind of this earlier adopter of this, like, adventure parenting theory. He didn't call it that at the time per se, but it was really this idea that you could bring kids out in nature and scare the hell out of them, essentially, and that would help them build confidence. (laughs) And so um, he would like go out in big storms with me and we'd sleep in snow caves. He said he changed my diapers in snow caves. And that did two things. For one, it was effective in terms of making me love adventure and be excited by this outdoor environment. Um, the other thing is that kind of possibly warped my view of risk and I became maybe addicted to risk taking in a way that was sometimes good and sometimes not so good. 
I'm thinking about my own childhood, watching Heart to Heart, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, <laughs> on a couch <laughs> in suburban Liverpool, and there you are just having diaper after diaper change, but only in snow caves. <laughs> a quote that you kind of lived your life by early on, and he did, your father, was from a climber hero of yours, Warren Harding, who once described the essence of your sport. Rock climbing, he said, is a fine kind of madness. Can you describe the way that your skill, one in which you write millimetres of skin contact and molecules of healing on multi-week climbs, in which you sleep suspended in air on the rock face? I mean, it just seems like you talk about being addicted to risk, but really, above all, you are a man who knows the difference between risk and recklessness. Yeah, I'm not surprised you pulled out that quote. Warren Harding was a super self-deprecating character. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, climbing is this, I would say it's a constant process of trying to find a way to safely navigate the minefield. It's actually a great way to train that in life, actually. And so that's what we do. We go up in these very risky, um, scary-seeming environments, and we find ways to make them safe. But that madness that Harding hints at is in complete conflict to that deeply rational, almost instant risk assessment that you make every minute on those faces. How do you do that? We're trying to identify that all the time. We're trying to figure out what that line is. And we're convincing ourselves that we're thinking logically about it. But, um, you know, we're not always right. I think these days um, a lot of climbers are dying unexpectedly. Really, really good climbers who spend their whole life trying to figure out where that line should be. And sometimes we're just wrong. And so a lot of this book was trying to figure that out. Like as a father, I want to make sure I live a long life and I do something that's relatively risky. So I'm trying to figure out how to draw that line for myself so I stick around, but also figuring out how to raise my kids in a way that they will, you know, make the right decisions, I guess. It's a life goal of yours to change your great-grandchildren's diapers instead. <laughs> and physically, looking at you, you are blessed with the ideal modern climber's body. <laughs> You're like a light, yeah, like, skinny modern dancer. Yeah, that super hunched over, bad posture. Yeah, yep. yeah, <laughs> that's me. You, I mean, your fingers are like my thighs. They're amazing. They really are. They're the most muscled fingers I've ever looked at. And they've empowered you quickly to become a world-class climber. You wandered all over the globe, meeting challenges. 2000, you're headed off to Kyrgyzstan, only to be pulled off the mountain face and become the hostage of Islamic militants for six days. One of the hostage was executed. You're only freed when you grabbed one of the terrorist assault rifles and hurled them off a clifftop. When you were living that, did that experience feel akin to a climb, another form of suffering, survival, overcoming, or was it profoundly different? There was fear in a whole different realm. It was like, as climbers, we kind of, you know, we're... we're, we're we're getting out of our comfort zone, but within, in a way, it's like in this realm that we know quite well. Getting kidnapped, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, had no, I had no training with how to deal with that. But there were things that probably helped me get through that experience that I learned from climbing. Like what? Like we as climbers are always wrestling with this idea of how, we can, how far we can push ourselves physically. And we like the idea of coming to life when kind of everything is on the line. And that definitely happened to me. You know, like coming to the conclusion that you actually have to like push a guy off a cliff and kill somebody is not an easy thing to do. And in some ways that messed me up psychologically, but in other ways it was like really empowering because I knew there was something in me that I could like react when we had to and save our lives. That empowerment propelled you. I mean, you began just an unbelievable rise in the climbing world, scaling unconquerable heights faster and with less equipment than any man or woman before you. El Capitan, 
always loomed large in your imagination now. In your book, you call it 3,000 feet of blankness. Can you describe the challenge it presents to non-mountain climbing ignoramuses like me? Right. So if you go to Yosemite and you look up at El Capitan, everybody is struck by it. It's just giant. It looks surreal. Like one time I was in Yosemite and there was a German guy staggering from the base of El Cap. Like I passed him and he just looked me in the face and he's like, I've just seen God. You know, that's the effect that it has on people. And it has even more profound of an effect on climbers because we're looking up there and we're thinking about climbing in it and it just looks totally absurd. It looks like you shouldn't be able to climb it because it's so big and it looks like there's no path of weakness. It just looks impossible. But when you break it down to its elemental parts and you go to the base and you start looking at it in this very small scale and you climb the first few feet and then you could, it turns into 100 and you just work your way up, turns out it's possible. And I was fascinated by that. And so I got fully addicted from over 20 years of my life. I just would go back and try and do bigger and harder routes. And that eventually led to this route, the Dawn Wall, which was kind of like the biggest, hardest looking part of the wall. I mean, describe it again to someone who is not routinely meeting the cliff face. I mean, it does feel almost smooth porcelain-like in its feel. Yeah, I mean, the Dawn Wall specifically from even 30 feet away, it looks completely blank. And it's not until you get right up and put your face right next to the rock and even run your fingertips over the surface do you start to find these little crevices, these little edges. And if you've trained yourself properly, you can work the molecules of your skin into it and start to figure out how to pull your weight up. And linking that mentality, you know, that all the way together for 3,000 feet is like this giant puzzle. Like on the Don Wall, I spent a year just finding the path and then seven years trying to train myself to be able to climb it. So When, when yeah. you say crevice, I immediately think of something with roots popping out and little <laughs> owl can, can kind of like fly down and sit in it. But you, you're really talking about micro crevices. Yeah, like the edge of a dime, sometimes the edge of a credit card. The footholds are far enough away from your eyes that you can't even see them sometimes. You have to take a bit of chalk out of your chalk bag because we use gymnastic chalk to dry the sweat off our hands. And you can use it to kind of make this temporary mark on the wall so that you know exactly where that foothold is because it's so small you can't even see it. Barely enough room to jam your, your meaty tummy fingers in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's this funny thing. As you climb, your fingers get fatter, but the holds get smaller. So it's this, uh, <laughs> this uh, constant balancing act. That odyssey, it really was an odyssey, combating El Capitan. I mean, it was your third attempt on that dorm wall. How it works is you go up there and you work out the moves. You know, you work out the individual parts. It's like rehearsing a gymnastics routine or something. And then if, at some point you want to perform the entire routine. So that was, we made three attempts. But we spent, you know, seven years growing up and coming down and practicing it. Seven years of planning. Yeah. Of failing and dreaming. Yeah, lots of failing. Twice you made attempts, twice you failed. And then your 19 days of glory, <laughs> which caught the world's yeah. imagination partially because the New York Times started to follow it. Front cover, five days on the run. Also, in the social media age, you're able to cover it day by day. This is amazing to me. On the mountain face, through Facebook and Instagram, the world starts to follow along with you. I mean, you write early on about being on your cell phone thousands of feet up and watching your Instagram in one day soar from five to 50,000. I mean... I was trying to think what that must feel like. Climbing, it's such a solitary, natural pursuit. Does it give you extra impetus, make your adrenaline flow more? Does social media <laughs> give you strength, Tommy? Uh, you know, I hadn't developed that mechanism yet at this point, really. I mean, I was a uh, total new to social media. I didn't understand the power of that storytelling format 
until this happened. On our first attempt, though, um, my partner Kevin Jorgensen was doing Twitter updates all the time, and I remember being like, this is wrong. Like, this shouldn't exist. This is such this weird thing. But then we came down, and people would come up to me, like, every day and be like, that was, like, the highlight of my day at work. That was so cool to follow along. Like, when are you going back? My Instagram following soared, you know, like, hit that uh, sort of inflection point because the New York Times linked it from my Instagram feed to the cover of the New York Times. And it was this picture of me looking all jacked and tan, standing on a portal edge in my, in my long underwear bottoms. Yeah, a rare moment. Shirtless. Yeah, shirtless. Yeah, shirtless. yeah, yeah it was a very, very rare moment. I've been basically like the farthest thing from a sex symbol for my entire <laughs> life possible. And so it was, it was a moment of vanity. And it felt good, honestly. It, yeah, it, oh, It's very reassuring because Lexi posted yeah. a photo of me shirtless in my long underwear and we actually lost 10,000 followers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Still trying to puzzle through that one. But you're right about the climb. Like many sports, climbing, it's all about pain endurance. And my God, Tommy, you suffer in the book. I mean, you experience climbs in freezing conditions in which your skin is destroyed. You lose your left index finger just above the knuckle in an accident. You experience lack of food, total dehydration, exposure. You savage yourself on El Capitan. I mean, just gashed, weeping, bloody, blistered hands and feet. <laughs> and you write, when we think we're nearing our breaking point, in fact, we're not even close. Tommy, I am someone who just crumbles in the face of adversity. You like to look at adversity as adventure. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the one true talent I have in life is my ability to suffer. And I don't know totally where that came from. I think it was probably partially my dad putting me through so much pain when I was little. And that got it started. That kind of prepared me for uh, Kyrgyzstan, which was so painful. And everything since then has felt kind of, kind of mellow. So it's kind of like if you have an experience like that, it gives you this tool, right? It's like my ability to suffer is almost like my superpower. That's the way I see it. So when you're using your superpower, that's pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> but give us an example. Give the listeners an example of the kind of pain we're talking about. What is the worst pain you've encountered and dismissed just as a flesh wound? I think there's some chapters in the book where I go alpine climbing in Patagonia and we're, you know, sitting up high on these mountains with no warm clothing and the temperature drops. Uh, you know, we have to go so light that we can't bring sleeping bags. We don't have much clothing and we have to spend the night just kind of like sitting next to each other or kind of, you know, sometimes cuddle to, to get warm but you have to endure this like these nights you know five or six hours of teeth chattering shivering and that's that's a different kind of pain like pain in the moment when you're being active is different than pain when you're just sitting there it lasts forever um, but you know you have a good partner when you can laugh through those moments you know how do you do it though because i am someone who finds suffering totally debilitating but you write in time, I realized my mind was the only thing holding me back. <laughs> what techniques do you use to overcome pain? It's just a paradigm. You understand that that pain, that the ability to endure that is, yeah, it's going to like make you stronger, I guess. I kind of cringe when I say that a little bit because I'm like, God, oh, that was just so something my dad would say. <laughs> so pain uh, can't be suppressed, but it can be savored. It can be embraced. I guess. Yeah, savored. That's a good way to put it. Hello um, again, my old friend, Mr. <laughs> Payne. Oh, you're talking about your father. He proudly tells the New York Times this. After the climb, he said Tommy's greatest strength is his ability to suffer. Oh, that was his ultimate proud moment, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and in the yeah, book, you write, 
Yeah, I mean, the best thing about beating your head against the wall is it feels so good when you stop. <laughs> and I wrote in the margin in a pencil, why stop beating your head against the wall in the first place? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> because life is quite boring when it's totally comfortable, right? Like, why do this podcast? You're putting yourself out there. There's something about adventure. I mean, coming to New York, see, I think the, the appeal to this place is that you're kind of challenged everywhere you go. And I just find it up on the mountain. You know, other people look for it other places. Uh, you know, doing drugs, it's kind of like you need that outlet. And so for me, that outlet is pain. Yeah, I mean, this podcast, to answer your question, is uh, so that other people can feel like they're banging their head against the wall. And then it feels <laughs> so good. So good. It's so good when, when, it, when ends. it ends. Yeah. What do you do with fear, Tommy? I use it as a tool in so many ways. I'm, I'm pretty used to being tough up on the mountain, you know, embracing fear. But when it comes to things like seeing a cat on the side of a road, getting hit by a car, like a crumple, like I'm not just this tough dude all the time. I just have this way to compartmentalize it in these, you know, in certain places. But, yeah, but yeah. when you are on the mountain, on the face, emotionally, do you experience fear? Or is that just intellectual and you're able to repress that? Um, I, I experience it somewhat, but I do think it's very repressed. Like I know that my reaction to fear is probably unhealthy which that is almost the scariest thing of all. Like from afar, when I do up on the mountain and I push through these dangerous moments and then I come back down and I'm like, why did I do that? That was so dumb. Like I should, <laughs> I, really, I really need, I wish I had that instinct more that made me stop when I should. You wish you had that? I, I mean, I do as a father, absolutely. God. And as a good husband and as somebody who's like a good son, it's a bit selfish to put yourself out there and risk killing yourself off. Like it's a really selfish thing to do. This interview is not going how I thought it would. I thought it was going to be about me wanting to be more like you. Instead, it's turning <laughs> into you wanting to be more like me. The most mundane, average, vanilla bloke in the world. Yeah, uh, I guess it's all about finding the balance, right? Oh, yeah. Which is somewhere in between our two microphones, I imagine. What about self-doubt? Oh, I experienced plenty of that. At the time? Yeah, I mean, I think I, when we go climbing, we fail like 90% of the time. And so you kind of live for those very, very few moments where you actually break through. And self-doubt, I don't know, I view it a little bit like you need the uh, salty to appreciate the sweet. You need a lot of doubt to really feel good when you finally break through it. Death. Do you think about that much on the mountain face? No, I don't. I always go straight to this place of like, we got this. This is going to be fine. There's never moments when you engage with that. You're able to turn that off as an eventuality. I mean, I come to those moments afterwards. Um, like, you know, when, I'm, when I come down from the mountain and I experience doubt for having pushed myself, like whether that was a good idea or not. You talk about selfishness. And th this part of the book that I found fascinating is you began your professional career and you leave your loved ones for months at a time to risk your life conquering peak after peak. And you wonder out loud whether it was selfish to spend so much of my life on an activity which directly serves no one but me. And after reading the book and thinking about my own life, which is dedicated to football, how do you answer the question now? I answer it with, you have to feed your own ambition if you're going to have anything to give to other people. And so if I was a hollow shell of a man because I didn't do it in passion to me, would I be a good father? I don't know. I can answer that. As a hollow shell myself, I can answer <laughs> that, but I'll tell you about that later because I want to get back onto El Capitan. When you're about to, after 10 years of planning and dreaming of the climb, when you're almost done and the peak is within your reach, you ask yourself, do I really want this to end? 
And you talk about having known that dorm wall longer than you've known your wife and child. And you start to think, what happens to my life without that driving force? When you have overcome your challenge in life, your central focus, does emptiness set in? Or do you long for something not necessarily different, but deeper? Usually I go through this emotional roller coaster. It's like when I realize it's going to happen, but before I top out, usually it's like my arms in the air, I'm so excited. And then when I get to the top, I'm like, oh my God, it's over. It's suddenly over. What do I do now? And that can be yeah, a bit depressing, honestly, or sad in a way. It's like the end of a love affair. How long does it take for that kind of post-climax to set in? It's probably proportional to how long the high was. Like the low is going to be longer if the high was really a lot longer. And so for the dawn wall, yeah, I'm probably still going through it in a way. But you've not replaced El Capitan. You've not summoned that next great challenge. No, I haven't. I mean, I focused so hard on trying to write the best book I could uh, for a long time because that's not in my wheelhouse. You know, I wasn't a trained writer. And I, I found that to be very fulfilling because I always need those goals. But it was in a realm that I didn't actually know a whole lot about. But I think, you know, I missed climbing during that time and I will go back to El Cap. And there's other walls like that around the world, like in Baffin Island and, you know, places in the Arctic that are a bit more remote and a bit more wild. I just have to find the ones that I'm, you know, relatively certain I will live through because the farther you get from civilization, kind of the more serious it gets. Living, Tommy, is good. Yeah. Uh, I've got to say, I find your book absolutely inspiring. Thank you for writing it. I've gone right back to the beginning and I've been influenced to follow in your footsteps. I'm currently at the stage where I have my diapers change in a snow cave <laughs> and I'm hoping to progress from there and follow in your footsteps because you are a remarkable human being, strong, bold, adventurous, really inspiring, to, especially to soft-bellied urban couch dwellers like <laughs> myself. Your book, The Push, a Climber's Journey of Endurance, Risk, and Going Beyond Limits is available now. It's a joy to be with you, Tommy. Courage. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, cool to me that non-climbers are connecting with this thing. That was my goal. 